So as I was saying, this is our second week uh, with Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'll just give you a quick uh, sort of recap of last week for those uh, who might have missed it. As you probably know, though, if you have read it before, you know the letter was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of other letters in the New Testament. And on his missionary journeys, one of them, he founded a church in a city uh, of Philippi, which is in uh, Macedonia. And later on, when he was in prison and he was waiting to go on trial for his faith, he wrote them a letter encouraging them about living as Christian people in a world in which they were facing a lot of difficulties and struggles, as Christians in every age have. Uh, And as I said last week, I think the theme of this letter to the Philippians is the way in which through the process of growth in faith, ordinary people like the Philippians and like us can become these sort of clear containers of God's spirit. So so as Paul says in his famous image in this letter, they are and they will to shine like stars in the universe. And as we saw in the opening chapter, um, how this shining like stars is also what we call holiness, um, which is a growth in love and knowledge that goes on in a cycle for those who follow Jesus forever as we grow. And I think that each week in this series, if I can, I might try to introduce you to a, well, at least one big theological word. Last week, um, the word was sanctification. I think it can help us if you know we want to learn more to, to read what other people have written as well. So last week, uh, yes, I introduced the word sanctification. It means the process of becoming holy, and that's um, there. Um, one of the things that I was reminded about when I was talking um, to people after the sermon last week is that um, for many people, this idea of sanctification or of holiness is one that might be loaded or uh, have negative or painful experiences behind it that people might have had as members of the church. Um, Often the idea of holiness or of purity has been tied up with fairly sort of crushing burdens of uh, rules of behaviour and morality and trying to control what people do when they feel um, and giving rise to experiences of guilt and shame. For not, for not measuring up. So I hope that as we go on through Philippians then, that Paul's teaching on these matters can sort of lift perhaps some of those burdens from our shoulders and allow us to actually stand in the kind of true light of holiness again um, with the freedom that Jesus brings. Um, an old friend of mine shared this quote on Facebook from C.S. Lewis the other day. Uh, he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, and I think he says well about this topic. So C.S. Lewis says, Um, Though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on, out of all that, into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of such things except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled with what we would call goodness as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They are not thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. So today, um, I think as we look at this chapter from two Philippians, chapter 2 of Philippians, I think we do get a sort of glimpse over the sort of the edge of our world into the source that C.S. Lewis is talking about, into the place where holiness comes from for God's people and a sense of what that actually is like. And Paul allows us to dig deeper into the heart of this holiness and what produces it in our own world in a real way. And I think what we, what, what we find in what he says that is that at its beginning, the holiness or the sanctification of Christian people comes from the, the extent to which we participate in the self-giving and humble love of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus, as we know, was the expression of God's holiness and God's character in the world. And so I think as we get into this, this is the journey that we're being led on. So let's get into this passage now. Um, The question that Paul seems to be addressing as he writes in chapter 2 is related to some of his words in in the first chapter about the trials that he's going through personally uh, and the trials that the Philippians have been going through. And these are the trials and struggles of things like persecution, um, but also the difficulties of life when we don't have enough resources to go around, um, when there isn't peace around us and when we're faced with sickness and grief and death. And these are all very normal struggles, which we know today. So the big question he is addressing, I think, in chapter 2 is, then how is it possible to face the struggles of life and the struggles of faith as a community together? How is it possible for these experiences of difficulty to draw a Christian community closer together in unity and in the experience of God? It's certainly possible and quite natural for times of struggle to drive people apart, and we see that happen because people come, we become preoccupied with our own problems and we neglect the relationships we have with each other. But Paul's asking, what is the opposite process that might happen, that the struggle with these things that actually drives people closer together and increases their love and their spiritual depth? And so I think to answer that question, for instance, he starts in verses 1 to 4 in this passage to talk about the basis for unity and harmony in a Christian congregation. Um, My observation recently, I think, is that in general, in Australian culture, we don't understand the idea of unity very well, or at least not in the sense that Paul does. Um, We have tended to think that unity happens... Uh, when everyone is the same or everyone has the same beliefs and the same values, the same experiences, the same goals and the same background. And often we look to build national unity by making everyone the same as those who are in the majority. Um, But for Paul, in these verses, unity really means it's actually a process that encourages diversity. It's a process by which we allow within the community for what we might call difference without division. Difference without division. So unity is kind of a difference that is allowed to exist within a community, but it doesn't divide people. Unity is a space that's held where people come from different directions and with different backgrounds, as they did in the church in Philippi, And they're all able to be heard and they're all able then to be bound together in a common spirit going forward. And what allows this to happen in Philippi, Paul says, is the Philippians have a common connection to Christ and his spirit together. So in verses 1 to 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So what is the same among them, what drives their unity, is not the external characteristics that they have, not their background, their wealth or whatever they have, but their common experience together of the spirit of Jesus, his love and his compassion and comfort in their lives. And so this is what they recognise in each other when they gather and it's what they recognise in Christians around the world whom they were supporting, that they have a a unity in the reality of Jesus despite the differences of their background or their class or their language. 
And therefore, he says, on the basis of that unity, they should be willing then to reach out in humility to care for each other because they see Jesus in each other. So in verses 3 to 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So when we don't have unity with someone else, or when we don't have unity with another group, Paul says it's clear, we look to our own interests first, because we don't care about the other people's needs. But, he says, if you are united with Christ, then these other people's needs are your needs. In fact, you value others more than yourself because you see Christ in them, no matter how different they may be to you. So this then is the basis of the unity that he's saying in the midst of our struggles, which is the humility that comes from being united with Christ. This is how you grow in love as a community in the face of struggles and trials. Now, I think that level of teaching would be enough for us, I think, to take away and to chew on. But Paul then goes on and has what is an even deeper word for them. So he says, being united with Christ, it's not just a word that you say. It's not just an idea. It's not just a belief. It means going into the heart of God himself that Jesus has revealed to us. He says it's going into this kind of country of holiness that C.S. Lewis was talking about. And that's what our oldest hymn, our very first Christian song, is about in verses 5 to 11. So in this hymn, this is the very first hymn, Paul quotes it. He says, your relationships should be based on what Jesus... uh, That's a... a, Can you go back? I might have missed a slide. (laughs) Now you're going to be wondering why that's to the Sorry, I think I missed putting in the next slide, Trevor. (laughs) Don't worry, it's coming. Anyway, um, so in verse 5, the reading we have, the translation we have says, Paul says, "In in your relationships have the same mindset as is in Christ Jesus. So what was the mindset of Christ Jesus and what does this song teach us about it? Um, One of the troubles that I have with preaching on this passage um, is that how deep it is and how rich it is with ideas and all the interpretation you can get into of this song. You know, there were creeds and statements of the faith in the church that were still being worked out on the basis of these words about 400 years later, you know. Uh, And it makes us confront all sorts of questions like, who is Jesus? Who is God? What did it mean for the Son of God to become a human being? There's a lot to say. But for today, I would like to put those big questions aside. And I think just in this hymn, you can see it describes two movements in the story of Jesus that are related to this mindset of humble love that Paul says. So the first half of the song talks about his coming down into the world. And the second half of it talks about his being raised up uh, in glory by God. So let's think about the first half in verses 6 to 8, where it talks about the coming down, about Jesus, as Paul says and writes, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' story, as we heard, it starts in the essence of God and comes from there down into the world as Jesus became part of our lives. Now, in verse 7, there's a phrase there. Jesus said, Jesus made himself nothing. And this phrase, made himself nothing, comes from a Greek word called kenosis. And that is our new word for the week. So 
Kenosis is a very powerful idea, and I, I'm going to explain to you what it means. Now, I, I haven't watched the Barbie movie yet, um, but I would, I, I would love to see if someone can connect this idea to the character of Ken there, um, because I think that might help people understand what, it, what kenosis actually is. Now, if someone can do that for me, let me know. If you could do it, you would be famous on the Christian internet for about a week, if you, I think, for your comment. Anyway, I just want to say, it's just a, okay, so that's why Ken's on here. Kenosis, it's, it'll help you to remember, remember the word. Okay, but seriously, okay, we can move on from Ken. I know he's distracting. Okay, but seriously, in my understanding, kenosis, I've got an next slide there, Trevor, sorry. Um, it generally means emptying, okay? So the word kenosis means emptying. So you empty a bottle, or you empty a box, or a container and there's nothing left inside it anymore. Um, and so the kenosis of Christ is the process that he undertook, as the, 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 psalm says, the hymn says here, to empty himself of the divine attributes, to empty himself of the privileges of being the son of God, these things that separate God from human beings and from creation so that he could be united to us, so that he could serve us, and so that he could save us. And so we hear he emptied himself of power, status, of glory and infinity itself in order to be able to bridge this gap between us. And then, of course, we hear in his human life, he went even further in this kenosis and emptied himself of comfort and security and even the appearance of holiness himself so as to make space in his life for pain and for death and the weight of sin to enter into his heart on the cross. And so this is the kenosis of God. So he has everything but then he empties himself of everything except love in order to be united to us. This is what Jesus did. And it's such a beautiful mystery. And we can never get to the depths of understanding what that really means. So the first half of this hymn is this emptying of Christ. And the second half of the hymn then is this other side of the story, the rising up of Jesus in glory after his emptying. So Paul says... Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians often talk about Jesus as Lord, don't we? Talk about the Lord. What does that mean? Um, I think one of the things we need to remember when we do that is that the lordship of Jesus is a very particular kind of lordship. It's not like lordship in our world. It doesn't come from above. It doesn't come through the opposing, imposing of a rule of power from God's realm. The lordship of Jesus, this reminds us, comes up from below. It comes up out of his emptying out of his servant love and the humble way that he entered into the world. And so the lordship of Jesus, it rises up from his death and his sufferings and it brings us with him as we participate in that. And Paul says his love then overcomes the opposition to God's kingdom so that people will acknowledge him and will give him glory that he is due. So I think we must understand this ourselves if we want to follow him as our Lord because in our own community and in our own lives, we don't exercise lordship, we don't look for glory, apart from the kind of service that Jesus gave and the love that he had for him, for each other. Otherwise, we don't have the mindset of Jesus. This is what he's encouraging us to have. Jesus himself spoke about this, and we can read about it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. So you might remember when Jesus' disciples got into an argument about who 
among them was going to be the greatest or most important of Jesus' followers. And so I'll read to you from that passage. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles are lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the mindset of Jesus. And that brings us back then to Paul's question to the Philippians, I think, in his teaching here, which is how do you face the struggles of life together as a community and how, do you be, how are you united through that experience? And the answer he gives is that the mindset and the example of Christ must be followed. And that means we must also undergo a kenosis, an emptying of ourselves, an emptying of aspirations for glory, um, an acceptance of the reality of suffering that comes with that emptying and then the solidarity in that experience the, and the common comfort we have in the Holy Spirit to those who've emptied themselves. Um, I think we can see then what that means in practice. Um, Jesus emptied himself for the good of others. He was willing to do what was needed. Therefore, if we're united with him, we'll do the same. I believe it's very important for us to understand this. And I think it's very important for Christians to realistically and to compassionately estimate the struggles of other people. Um, and wherever we can, not just be blinded or preoccupied by our own concerns, but actually see the others. Um, we're all united in this common struggle, and we know that Jesus is united with us. I like the way that the theologian Ian McLaren puts it in his word. He says, be kind, for everyone that you meet is fighting a great battle. We're all fighting a great battle and struggle in the world together. And so community in the mindset of Christ is not a selfish grabbing for power. It's not about getting my needs met um, and other people not. It doesn't humiliate other people with judgment or guilt or attempts to control them, even for the sake of promoting holiness. Like Christ himself, we're supposed to empty ourselves of those things and therefore be with him and be lifted up and acknowledge his lordship together. And I, I think that one way we start to do that is by incorporating the practice of truth in our lives and confession of where we fail to do that. So I'd like us to end our reflection on this Bible passage today with a prayer that is together a confession of our struggles and our need for the love and the mind of Jesus and the Spirit to comfort us. So there's going to be a prayer on the screen. Uh, I'm going to invite you just to spend a moment in silence and I'm going to pray. And if you respond with the words in bold, and we just confess together and ask Jesus to put his mind in us today. So let's just spend a moment in silence though first. Lord, we have come to see that our lives fall far short of your glory. Have mercy and forgive us. Lord, you have given your life for us and poured out your spirit, yet we fail to return your love with all our heart. Have mercy and change us. Too often we are selfish and proud, ignoring you, Lord, and neglecting others. Have mercy and cleanse us. Lord, when we do not truly trust and obey you, we are overwhelmed by self-pity, fear, and worry. Have mercy and deliver us. In Christ, we are given a sure hope and secure love, yet we follow the false hopes and desires of this world. Have mercy and forgive us. Father, through the redeeming death of your Son on the cross, by your spirit and through your word. Transform and renew us to follow you with joy. 
All this we ask, constant, confident in your unchanging faithfulness. Amen.